The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. The live button is blue and I'm clicking it. Click. And we're live. It is Monday, September 13th, 2021, 5 o'clock p.m., and I have two really important pieces of uh, news for you. The first and overwhelmingly important one is that I'm grouchy because I got the shingles vaccine today, Mm -hmm. and my arm hurts, and uh, I'm feeling a little off and um, and so I'm actually going to start a resistance movement over this because uh, I should never have to go through the experience of having my arm uh, a little bit sore, even a little bit. That's and I original never then. Feel a little <laughs> off um, in order to protect myself from uh, devastating pain and burning. Um, and so I am hereby starting the anti shingles vaccine movement which has no good arguments, uh, except that I'm not feeling all that well today. So, (laughs) fuck you all. Don't take the shingles vaccine. Um, uh, No, of course, all that's not serious. You should take the shingles vaccine. Ben, get to the second point, though. The the second point, which is far less important, um, is that Genevieve had her baby. um, How could this be the second thing after you're, like, about this morning now you're choking you deserve this um, <laughs> okay ben is okay actually choking like i can't like give him the maneuver over the, <laughs> over the... yes genevieve had her baby he yeah. is named <coughs> Luke Alistair. Is that right? Yep. Um, he is healthy. Uh, uh, his mother is healthy. Um, and as uh, a button. Yes, he's adorable. <coughs> and uh, needless to say, he will be hosting the show later this week. Um, he's already got some guests lined up. Uh, and uh, he uh, wanted us to tell you that we are not allowed to have fun anymore. But in lieu of fun, we are allowed to have Walter Schaub back. Um, uh, and, you know, those are just will... the opposite of fun. <clears throat> no, yeah, well... you said that last time and it was a great time. So you're full of shit. <laughs> and I just by wanna... the way, am I invisible right now? Because the two of you are invisible on my screen. No, you're you're yeah. perfectly visible. Yeah. Um and looking wonderful, I may might say. Um yeah. so um uh Ben, I talk... just wanted to say that how like how like noble a death would it be to choke <laughs> on wine in a dog shirt live on a choke to death like live on in lieu of fun? You know, while making a joke at your own expense exactly. about self-involvedness, um, yeah, <laughs> I I think it's um, I think that'd be a good way to go. And um, 
Uh, Tom Rake asks the critical question whether there are baby-sized dog shirts. Oh, my I God. I do not know the answer to that question, but we are going to look into it. Um, so, uh, I am grouchy because I have the shingles vaccine. Kate and Walt are both grouchy for other reasons. Uh, Walt, why are you grouchy today? Well, first of all, I got the shingles vaccine last week and it did not make me j grouchy. So this may be a character flaw on your part. I completely. Um, <laughs> actually, if I don't seem all that grouchy, uh, it's because I'm really not. I just wanted to make a joke at the expense of vaccine, you know, uh, <laughs> agonists. Very good. And you will get the second shot, right? Because it's a two shot series. It is. Yeah, so don't forget I, to get the second I one. will get the second shot with a smile on my face <laughs> and uh and wearing a dog shirt. Um <laughs> I was by the way stopped on the street uh the other day by somebody who recognized me because of my dog shirt. Oh my from god. Lieu of fun. That's really uh, funny. It was excellent. Um and uh, I, I just want to say, if you see somebody segueing down the street in a dog shirt, yes, it's probably me. Uh, so, Walt, what are you grouchy about? Well, um, you know, I'm, I'm grouchy all the time about ethics these days. We came through four years of ethical nightmare, and the president ran on a platform that included multiple promises about legislation that he'd pursue and they don't seem to be interested in pursuing any of it and the washington post had an editorial today about how the window of opportunity for change is closing and they need to get serious soon um i will give them credit for having a pretty good compliance program i haven't seen anything out of the ordinary in terms of violations. I mean, every administration is going to have some slip ups now and then. And this one has been particularly good about admitting mistakes and trying to go forward, which um, to me is the ideal posturing for an ethics program, because you can't shoot for 100% compliance, but you want to create an atmosphere where you can um, acknowledge a mistake and fix it and do better. And of course, we had the last administration just thumbing its nose at ethics and sort of proudly violating it. Um, but unfortunately, when you talk to them, they talk about their ethics program as a compliance program. And I feel like that's a failure right from the start of imagination because the rules are too weak. They, they're, they never were very good. And Trump didn't weaken them. He exposed their weakness. He exploited their weakness. Um, but when this administration leaves town, whether it's after four years or eight years, if something doesn't change soon, those laws are going to just be as weak as they always were. And the, the danger is growing because I, I count as part of ethics voting rights, which surprised a reporter recently, but I explained that you know, the ultimate definition of government ethics is misuse of power. Well, what is more misuse of power than rigging the system so that one group in a country
can decide elections and and another you've made it harder for to be able to vote and be represented in the government and it comes down to a question of who is power being used for and when the voting population is narrowed and particularly targeted um you wind up having a government that's not representative of all of the people and voting rights, it's a terrifying situation with nearly 400 bills having been introduced in states across the country to make it harder for people to vote and to throw obstacles in their way. And I fear that um, there just is not an awareness of, of the danger. Um, when, you, when you talk to them uh, and people connected to them, there really seems to be this sense that... Um, it's not that urgent. And there was that famous quote that um, some of the civil rights groups put out about their frustration in dealing with the White House, which is you're just going to have to out-organize. Um, hmm. And the one thing you should think about, the fact that they shared that statement means they've given up on working with the administration because, you know, I have conversations with them that I won't tell you about because I want to keep working with them. Um, but these groups were working with them and reached a point where they were willing to share that comment. And in doing so, I'm sure they slammed a door because uh, the administration won't keep talking to them if they're sharing their confidential conversations. So for them to have done that, and these are very sophisticated um, people, for them to have made that choice to do that means they gave up on working behind the scenes and decided to ratchet up the pressure externally. And I think we're starting to see the benefits of that. I think the administration thought it could shrug off HR1, um, in particular, the For the People Act. And I think they've gotten enough blowback from people who actually support them and like them that they are forced to take it seriously. And sometimes I think when I take heat on Twitter, people think I'm bashing the administration and just trying to hurt it. But in reality, I want this administration to succeed. And my efforts to call out their shortcomings are to create pressure on them to actually try and, and pursue some of the legislation that they promised they would pursue. And you see the Washington Post now coming around to that same viewpoint in today's editorial, where they really were saying the window- Was it the editorial the board's editorial? Yeah. Yeah, okay. it's actually the editorial I'm trying board. to find it. Yeah. I'll, I'll find um, it. I may have it. It's. Um, oh, no, I'll find it. We'll find okay. it. Somebody will find yeah, it. Yeah, it was in today's paper. So they met with a bunch of the good government groups and um, asked a lot of tough questions and then decided to, to write this op-ed. And so I think, I don't think the opportunity has been lost, but I think it will be soon. And um, there was the story that came out this weekend about how the president has now come around to telling Schumer and others that when they need him to put some pressure on the, the um, sort of waffling members of his own party in the Senate, he's ready to do that. And of course, that begs the question, A, well, why haven't you been doing that? And B, it validates what I think a lot of the public doesn't want to admit to itself is that there is more the president could have been doing this entire time. You saw him light a fire for 
infrastructure and yeah we desperately need infrastructure but we don't need it as bad as we need voting rights and but, um but tell me something walt so if i were a strategist for biden totally non-ideological cold-blooded reptile map you know just a political operative who's interested in maximizing political gain for my client yeah I would say do everything in three pieces. First, COVID, because you're not a success unless you suppress COVID. Full stop, that the economy rides on, that everything rides on that. So he's doing that. Number two, on the legislative side, do everything you can do on a bipartisan basis before you do anything on a purely partisan basis. That means get the infrastructure stuff done, then turn to uh, voting rights and stuff that the Republican opposition is going to be very determined to on. That seems to be exactly what he's doing. And so I have been unable to tell whether the uh, pushing away of the issues that you care about and frankly that I care about, yeah, which are an overlapping set of kind of post-Trump reform issues, is really a creature of not caring about them or it's kind of an order of operations issue that they know once they turn to gerrymandering, they're... <laughs> You know, you're in zero sum land at that point. Yeah. Um, whereas the infrastructure stuff, you can get 70 votes in the Senate for. Do you have a sense of whether it's that they've had to have been taught to care about this or that they're being cold blooded reptiles? So I like your um, speculative scenario there as the one that strikes me as the most likely. Um, you know, you, you'll see people say, oh, well, they're too busy. They they have COVID and other things to deal with. But the reality is the people who would be dealing with these reform issues are not working on COVID. They're working on other issues. And so it's not a bandwidth problem. They have the bandwidth to do this. But I think your explanation makes more sense that they somehow think there's something to be gained um, by reaching across the aisle before these things. My fear is that this is um, exactly how they're thinking, and it certainly is consistent with my impression. I mean, at the level of some of these political types, really the content of their beliefs is secondary to the, to the, um, the approach that they take. That's what they specialize in. And, and some of these are just absolutely cold blooded individuals, no matter which side of the aisle you're dealing with. Um, and this administration in particular. Has, yeah, I, I mean, I don't use the word reptile. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of them are really, I mean, their job is to be, you know, monitor lizards. And, yeah. You yeah. know, just to say, hmm, warm-blooded boar. <laughs> and, and you meet those types in D.C. I, I think that um, related to this is that there's a particular strength of this administration that is unfortunately also its weakness. And that is that they've stacked the administration full of super capable, super smart, super experienced people with a long history in the executive branch 
The problem with those folks, though, is that they come with the baggage of thinking things always worked before uh, Trump and that Trump was just this anomaly. And as long as we don't get another Trump, we'll be fine. And not realizing that some of what we saw in Trump was just an exaggerated version of ethical failures that we'd seen in past administrations and that are just accepted. So I don't think that they fundamentally, even the non-cold-blooded ones, I don't think they fundamentally understand the need for reform. And I think their their years in Washington have made them cynical enough to think that things ebb and flow and everything will be fine. And I think they lack imagination for the dire potential um, of just the absolute collapse of the republic into uh, authoritarianism. And I think the lack of that imagination has caused them to not have a fire under them. Which so, is to say, I think you're right, but I, I think you're especially right because I think it's that cold-blooded thinking coupled with a failure of imagination to be freaked out like the rest of the country is. Yeah, so I, I, I'm going to, let's let Kate ask her question, but I want to follow up no, on that. I think I'm going to pivot, I'm going to pivot. I'm going to pivot. So go ahead. But I have a broader question about ethics. So, okay. So I look at this and I say, if you are not focused on the challenges that Trump raised, if you are responding and granted the, the circumstances are not ordinary, but if you're responding to the current situation as though you know, it's a COVID pandemic following an ordinary Republican administration, right? So this is 2009 after the Bush administration. There was a big financial crisis. There was a sense of urgency, get out of Iraq, right? And you get the sense that the Biden administration kind of feels like it's 2009. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, wait a minute, it's 2021 and we just followed the Trump administration. Yeah. And you need to have an orientation about the democratic urgency, small d democratic, of this moment, which is fundamentally about protecting democratic institutions. It's fundamentally about, to the extent we can, making it impossible for something like that to happen again, strengthening institutions that were attacked, uh, etc. I do feel like they respond more in a 2009 kind of way. Like there's a, a series of policy crises and there's a kind of long-term yeah. structural reform. It's a, actually a lot of, they're reacting a lot of, in a lot of the ways that I criticized Elizabeth Warren's campaign for, right? She sort of ran a campaign as though the president were any normal Republican mm -hmm. based around her policy views, which are coherent and reasonable and interesting, but not especially responsive to Donald Trump. Yeah. And I'm, I, I, I hear you saying something similar, which is that the situation is more urgent uh, on an ethics or democratic level than they're acknowledging. And I'm wondering why you think they don't see it that way. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, it strikes me as it really resonates with me when you say he's in a 2009 mode, because the thing I've been saying is Donald Trump thought he was the president of the red states only. And Joe Biden seems to think he's the president of 1991. Uh, there just seems. <laughs> no, to be... I think that that's right. I yeah. mean, I will. I have a similar critique for when I get to my point. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And so there just seems to be a complete disconnect. Um, Somebody once said to me, and I, and I won't tell you who it is, and I won't tell you whether they're in the administration, but they're close enough to the center of things that I think this is reflective of what um, all of them are thinking. This person said to me, Walter, all this talk of reform is just an overreaction to Trump, to which I imitated the scream from that <laughs> painting by Edvard Monk, because there is no such thing as overreacting to the threat that Donald Trump posed? So I am working on a paper about antitrust and I am not an antitrust um, uh, scholar um, or attorney, um, you know, but lawyers are generalists. We dig into things. I've read all of, I had read a lot of Lena Khan stuff before I read it all. I then went and read like a lot of other scholars and a lot of cases. And, and then I went and read the amended FTC complaint today. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to kind of like tear my hair out because it is talking literally about Facebook being in a market with Friendster and Orkut. And like, like this is, it's like the social network, the personal social networking thing, which doesn't even exist anymore. Like there was, <laughs> there were spaces Wait, that were Friendster just Friendster was real? I heard that quoted in a show like 30 oh, Rock, no. and I Friendster thought that was, was a real. made up thing. I knew no, there no. was MySpace, but I didn't know there was Friendster. Yeah. So like, I, and <laughs> I had all of this kind of, I have to say like that I was like, these are such smart people. This is such a sophisticated group. Like I have so much respect for all of these people that are handling this in this administration. I know that like, maybe I have missed something with all of this and there, you know, this one. And now I'm kind of like staring at it and I'm like, oh, like I know why you drew the market so small so you could show, demonstrate market power really broadly and then prove anti, like a monopoly. But like, it's just not intellectually honest. And then it's like all of these other things. And it's not going to be in that way. It's not going to end up being a solution for anybody. And so it's kind of like, I don't know. I'm just feeling very frustrated by government right now. And like, you thought you'd get people in there and you trust their normative motives. But I guess like, I feel a little, at least the law is constrained, probably the antitrust entire antitrust thing is never going to go anywhere. But like, I was thinking about this as it comes to ethics, because also today, Facebook had this giant kind of moment of like, they had set up this oversight board, and they covered all this stuff. And it kind of there's a big story today about how um, they treat public figures differently that we knew this before, but they kind of came out again, and, uh, and that they had like been misleading to to Facebook it to the oversight board and reporting on this. And all of these people on Twitter are just like, I knew it, the oversight board, which is this set up by Facebook, funded in a one-time deal, no longer continuously funded, but funded by Facebook in this way. I couldn't ever provide oversight. And I was like, what do people think oversight is? Like, mm -hmm. I guess that was like kind of like my, I'm like, what do people think that this is doing for them? Like, like what yeah. do, like, 
what do they think antitrust law is doing for them? What do they think like oversight does for them? What would they have it do differently? They had they called out Facebook in this very obvious way. If they hadn't gotten them to commit to this public statement, we'd be in a worse position than we are now. And so like, no one seems to understand that. They're like, oh, they're toothless. And I was like, but the, I don't know. Like, I just don't yeah. know. Does this happen with ethics? Like what, no. like, so what specifically, how would you, like, how would you make them, like when people say make them more, like fix them after Trump, fix these laws besides voting rights, like what exactly? Sorry, you know, that was a long your, rant. Your um, example of antitrust is interesting too, because I think it indirectly speaks to what's wrong with these guys. You said you don't specialize in antitrust. I know I don't either. And it seems to me like antitrust is just insanely broken. How do we have so many gigantic companies and so little competition? But I bet if you pulled in a bunch of antitrust experts and asked them, why is antitrust law so broken and so far from doing anything useful, they'd be confused by the question and they'd get lost in the weeds really fast. It seems to be a case of expertise keeping people from being able to step back and look at it at the 10,000 foot level, or at least even the treetop level and say, wait a minute, the shape of everything's wrong here. Yes. Um, no, that's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. And like, but I also think that like the people who are looking from the treetop level have to really understand what's down in the weeds and have the have the capacity to pull back and have perspective it has to be both right you have to understand how the entire system works in the nitty-gritty to know yeah. how to best fix yeah it. that's like, the problem is it's hard to have the newness of mind to be shocked by a thing while still having the expertise to fix a thing and um anything yeah. that takes us out of our comfort zone sometimes helps change that i, I my sense is that these folks are very hostile to ethics reform, um, not because like the last administration didn't care at all about ethics, but because they trust their own motives. And this can be sometimes a consequence of thinking of yourself as the good guys. And as long as the good guys are in charge, we'll never do anything bad. Um, and well, so right. we just need people to elect the good guys. And it's I, almost like good guy syndrome. Like you can't see your failings if you think you're the good guys. But like, I really love this idea of defining ethics and ethical behavior by use of power, because it's uh, very, um, that is so, that can be cabined. That can be well-defined. That doesn't have to be like hinged on norms changing. If you're self-dealing, right. There's something that's like never gonna get like un like unethical. <laughs> like that's just yeah. right. Like it's just there's a lot of. I just think that that's a great point, Ben. Do but you, you know, agree? But I, don't know. I, I gotta say though, I think that lets them off the hook a little too easy because we live in a two-party. Who system. Biden? The the administration? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We live in a two-party system. And in a two-party system, even in Japan, the opposition party sometimes wins. That's the nature of a two-party system. Mm -hmm. And so even if you have a certain amount of blindness because you believe you're the good guys, and, you know, actually Biden's a pretty good guy, so it's not, yeah. not totally self-delusion. Um, 
the nature of the system that you're operating in, you have to contemplate the other side being in power. And that is one thing when the other side is George W. Bush or Mitt Romney or John McCain, which is to say people whom you might have profound policy disagreements with, but you basically live in the same moral universe as. Um, and uh, it's quite different than when the people that you're contemplating turning over power to are you know, Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump Jr., let alone, you know, let alone <laughs> Donald Trump Sr. again. Um, and I don't think you need to have like a particularly self-critical imagination or imagine your own faults to say, hey, the rules when these guys were in power were frankly inadequate. Yeah. They could be in power again very soon. What's the Venn diagram, Kate, overlap between the rules that we would be willing to live under and the rules that we would want them to have to live under. And that strikes me as an exercise that requires no particular, you know, navel-gazing self-criticism to expect people to go through. What, yeah, you what know, am the, I missing? The thing that drives the resistance to ethics, even in this administration, is concerns about recruitment. They won't be able to recruit the person they want if they have to sell off too many things. And the classic example that this... Oh, so it's really just about like money? Just recruitment, yeah. And, and I will tell you, most of my career in ethics was working with presidential nominees and many Do of them were very wealthy. they have to sell wealthy. it? They can't stick it in a trust or something? You will never meet a cheaper person than a rich person. <laughs> You know, and people always try to excuse it, saying, well, that's how they got rich. But that's, that's not how people says. get rich. They inherit <laughs> it. And, um, um, and so, for instance, you'll get somebody who's come from a corporate job where they have a whole bunch of unvested stock options. And a new role might require them to forfeit those unvested stock options because the company makes everyone who quits forfeit. The whole purpose of the vesting is to keep you working there. Um, but the company knows that you're going into the government and maybe in a position to soften up the administration to care about your issues and you want to curry good favor with this person. So you say, you know what, we're going to accelerate your stock options so that you can, they'll be vested. You can't exercise them yet, but you'll get to keep them and not have to forfeit them like everybody else does when they quit. And this administration thinks that's wonderful. And that's not wonderful because that is a gigantic payment from a company to a person who's going into government. And quite often they wind up going back to that company. And so now you've got these companies running agencies. And I think another flaw along those lines is this administration talks a lot about diversity and it's got an okay track record on diversity. It's not great, but it's good. Um, but it has a terrible record on thought diversity. Everybody in the room is coming from the same background, big law firms, big corporations. Um, and so they're all sitting around looking at the world from the same perspective. It's no wonder these people can't imagine why it might be hard to stand in line eight hours to vote when you had to take three bus transfers to get there and take a day off work without pay. Uh, these are not people who are ever going to experience that. And so there's just a disconnectedness um, 
that comes from pulling from the same pool. And, um, you, and I think that drives a lot of the resistance to government ethics because they think, well, Trump was just evil and bad and ethics rules aren't going to stop that. And on one level, they're right. But you had Mark Short, who was the chief of staff to um, Mike Pence, and Mike Pence's office was leading the pandemic response, such as it was in the last administration. And Short held a bunch of stocks in companies affected by the pandemic. And he went to get a CD from OGE, but wasn't willing to divest all of it or wasn't able to. So he a CD is a certificate of divestiture where you get to defer capital gains if you divest because of a conflict of interest. And because he couldn't get that tax break, he didn't wind up divesting any of it. And we found pictures when I was at Crew of him in these meetings with these companies whose stocks he held as they were talking about decisions affecting specifically their industries. Um, and so the public has to wonder, well, you know, is Mark Short just an especially pure individual who can't be influenced by his own financial interests? Yeah, that and, that's actually the explanation. And was making altruistic he, decisions he's, he's against per perfectly, interest? He's perfectly, uh, and he's, he's the unusual public servant who's really capable of uh, uh, putting it all aside and just focusing on the public interest. Well, sure. Kind of like George Washington never Ford. let Mount Vernon, you know, and his land holdings uh, affect his decision. That's right. I, I really <laughs> believe that about Mark Short. <laughs> and so when you see this hostility to ethics, that's what you get in the next administration. And so while the Biden administration probably wouldn't let somebody sit in the room like that, um, they don't stop and think, well, in what ways are the rules too weak? In what ways are we having people who just came from the regulated industries now making decisions affecting those industries? And how many of these big law firm people are going to go back to the same firm they came from? Eric Holder left Covington and Burling. And then when he left the job as um, attorney general, went right back to Covington and Burling. And you have to wonder, well, what were his dealings with Covington and Burling like while he was attorney general, knowing he came from there and was going back there? Although the Justice Department, quite apart from the federal ethics rules, the Justice Department has its own conflict rules that go well beyond. Uh, yeah, there's a ton of conflict rules that you have to go through. Like, also, you have to go through them as an attorney once you're in private practice. So he couldn't. Like, he, yeah. what, you know, if he, if he had been in government for, I don't know what it is in D.C., but like in New York, it's like something like if you had been in that, like two, within the last two years, you couldn't like be do any work on like a case. That right. Was and I'm not worried about cases. DOJ is great about recusals from cases. And, and yeah, I think it's a bigger matters. problem at They're a policy a, level um, than it yeah, is. And at, a, and at his level, so much of what he did was policy. And so I have a feeling he strikes me as a pretty honest guy. I don't think he did anything to help them, but they may have gotten their calls returned faster and um, been able to access him easier. So there's so, that. Yeah, but so like, I, I want to ask you with that. Sorry, what's ahead, that? I, I want to ask you about the other side of this because, yeah. as is, um, you know, I've known a lot of people and um, who have gone through on you know, a nomination or appointment process 
uh, you know, I'm married to somebody who's currently going through a confirmation process. Um, you know, there is the the burden of the ethics checks among people who are not wheeler dealers uh, with serious business interests is pretty substantial. Oh, yeah. And um, I, without disagreeing with you, I do think the more the more difficult you make it, the fewer people are going to want to do it. Yeah. And so I guess the question is, is there any way to sort of to, to marry uh, like the highest impact ethics reforms in terms of their scope and reach and effect with the lowest impact in terms of their ability to discourage people from service? Yeah, like, I mean, are, are some of them doing a lot more work than others? Yes, in some ways. Um, you know, the, the concerns about recruitment are real. And I, as somebody who handled nominees for a long time, um, I always felt we needed to reduce the burden where we reasonably could. Um, and having been through the Senate confirmation process myself, I could tell you it's horrible. I mean, it's just a terrible process. Um, not necessarily because of the ethics rules, all of it. I mean, the, the, the extensive paperwork, the waiting, the background, the grilling by Congress behind the scenes and in front of the scenes. Um, and, um, that's unfortunate because that process itself deters people. Where I think ethics deters people is in the cases where divestiture becomes necessary. And there I tend to be a little less sympathetic because the argument is we won't be able to get good people if if we can't have these rich people who have these complicated assets. Well, I don't know that we need these rich people. There are other smart people who are not rich. Um, so I'm I'm less concerned about the fate of the uh, of the you know poor super rich people <laughs> who have a hundred thousand shares of blank corporation that they're not vested, you know, yet, um, than I am in the uh, person who maybe it's a bit onerous to hire the people who it will, the lawyers and accountants that it will take to, uh, uh, to go over their own personal portfolio yeah. at the level of, um, you know, isolated individual stocks at the level of uh, thing, you know, representations they're being asked to make that, you know, are apt to, they're apt to make mistakes in those representations. And yeah. then, of course, they are sworn um, or they're, you know, subject to 1001. I mean, there's just a lot of capacity for screw ups and every yeah. capacity for screw up is a capacity for a lot of anxiety. Yeah, it sure and, is. Uh, and I'm much more concerned about that group of people than I am about the Wilbur Rosses who can just, you know, 
hire whatever they need in order to, and don't seem to have a trouble making inaccurate statements and then having impunity for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will say you and I probably share that concern about the more middle of the road nominee. It's the really rich ones, the administrations, Democratic and Republican are, are worried about and the ones who might have to forfeit on vested stock options. Those are the two groups they care about. In terms of um, the nomination process, um, one change they could make that would just make it so much easier. I, I used to fill out a financial disclosure report and would be able to do it in 15 minutes if you didn't have to report the income from publicly traded mutual funds and stocks. And I didn't actually have any stocks. I only had mutual funds, but even trying to, because the time periods don't marry up necessarily with the time periods for the report. And if they just said, look, if it's publicly traded, we don't need to know the income because we could always look that up. Um, that would reduce the burden right there. Um, and that, the other thing I can tell you that'll be reassuring to your spouse is unlike the FBI background form, the SF-86 or whatever else they're filling out. Um, um, we assumed in the nominee program that the financial disclosure report was going to be wrong and didn't <laughs> hold it against the person. You'd spend weeks working with them, trying to help them make sure they didn't forget anything and fixing it. So that process is different because the FBI is playing gotcha and OGE was playing, how do we help you get this pristine so that you don't get embarrassed on, on the confirmation hearing? So um, th the good news is that won't be as awful as, as it seems at this stage. But having been through it, the anxiety is real. And I'd say uh, um, stock a lot of antacids because it's an awful process. So... Daniel, you are looking almost human today with a clock and a bookcase in the background and a lamp. Uh, uh, still a little bit backlit and with a blue shirt, but uh, uh, we'll it's allow almost, it. It's almost like you're 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 uh, 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 you know like petitioning for uh, for normalcy or something. I'll take like, it. Paula says it's almost like you live in a house. <laughs> So my question is, if you were given the powers to do so, how would you write the OLC memo that says we shouldn't prosecute the sitting president because it would undermine their functions as the executive? Would you do so, make changes to it? And if so, what changes would you make? Well, I... I personally think that memo was wrong. I don't know if, if Ben and Kate agree with it, but um, I would have just left well enough alone and say, let the process play itself out. Um, I don't think that memo should exist. So I actually do disagree with that. I think the memo, uh, the, the fundamental problem with the memo in 73-74 was that it was uh, almost wholly unexplained. It just sort of stated the position. Um, uh, this was perceived as enough of a problem by OLC in 2000 or 1998 
at the time of the Clinton impeachment that um, uh, the then head of OLC, now Judge uh, Randy Moss, a very, very fine judge in the District of Columbia, wrote a much uh, more significant opinion um, uh, fleshing out the argument. And I, I continue to think that opinion is well argued and correct, that it, it does not, it's very hard for me to understand logistically how the federal prosecutor uh, lifts his hand against his boss, which is to say the president is the head of the executive branch. It's kind of analytically nonsensical for the executive branch to be seeking to prosecute him. Uh, that said, uh, to me, the fundamental problem is not with the OLC opinion, it's with Congress. And that the, the OLC opinion presupposes that in the face of an obviously law-breaking president, your initial remedy is through the impeachment process, and you can deal with criminal prosecution later, but the first step's got to be to get him out. And that's... Uh, turns out to be empirically incorrect, mm -hmm. uh, at least in a period of uh, highly divided, polarized politics. And so to me, the question is uh, how to get Congress to behave like a separate branch of government rather than a party extension of, of the president's party when that's uh, um, at least for the part of it that that is you know, party aligned with the president. But I actually do agree with the OLC opinion as an analytic matter. You know, um, this is even like a good opportunity for a plug for the Protecting Our Democracy Act, which would toll the statute of limitations while a president's in office. So at least that lowers the stakes of yes. not prosecuting the president. And it does something else really important. It gives Congress more tools for enforcing subpoenas. Um, you know, Trump simply won the battles against Congress, not just in impeachment, but in terms of any meaningful oversight. Uh, and that's because the courts didn't really come to Congress's aid. Um, and Congress really lacks the mechanism for forcing any testimony. And unfortunately, and, and I'm not sure if this is where we disagree as well, but I see this administration, the Biden administration, as being guilty of what past administrations prior to Trump did and then Trump put on steroids, which is aggrandizing the power of the executive branch um, by resisting congressional oversight. And it was the Biden administration that forced Congress to settle for a closed door deposition of Don McGahn, when the truth is they really needed the public that the, the, that at, at large didn't read the Mueller report to see Don McGahn answering these questions. And they pretty much gutted the effort by forcing Congress to, to take a closed door deposition. And if the Protecting Our Democracy Act, POTA, or something like it doesn't get passed to give tools for Congress to enforce subpoenas, I worry that the executive branch has won for all time um, the battle that Trump won at preventing congressional oversight. And so maybe the, the, the real answer to the question is, you know, there's room to disagree about um, whether a president can be prosecuted, 
but it becomes irrelevant if you have more meaningful tools for conducting oversight and suspending the, the statute of limitations. So I very much agree with that. And it seems to me that the the basic principle here, the arguments against prosecution of the president, if you uh, while in office, is that it's it's structurally unsound. So if you think like if you think about it from a uh, uh, just a logistical point of view, uh, what if there were not bail issued? You know, would he? Would the Bureau of Prisons, which reports to him, have to incarcerate him? <laughs> and, you know, like like you get into some really profound yeah. structural craziness, but he should not reap a windfall from this by then, you know, being able to hold out and let statutes of limitations uh, uh, run. And so I think the idea that the law should freeze the matter in place um, uh, is a... Uh, is a very sound one and I think makes a lot of sense. Mm. Paula, the floor is yours, truck noise and all. Um, so both questions, one question, no. Do them both, okay. you're here, um, the floor is yours, so hog it. Question is, um, do you ever get like really nihilistic or cynical uh, when you see like these kind of I would say like stupid kind of ethical violations on both sides. And then, you know, the lack of care from the political leaders who claim to actually care. Um, and my second question is, and I hope this doesn't sound like flippant, but it sometimes see, seems like that some administrations like don't care about ethics in a way that doesn't make sense because it seems like an easy PR win. Mm -hmm. um, and these are problems that you wouldn't like want to have or create like, the Hunter Biden like art thing, like I listened to the press conference with Jen Psaki and like to an educated person, like it just like you don't sound smart answering the questions because there is no way to sound smart answering those questions. Um, yeah. But it seems like why put yourself in that position in the first place, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, so on the first one, um, I'm actually a ghost. My head exploded years ago. And um, what you're seeing is the, the sort of ectoplasmic remains um, <laughs> continue to operate on Earth. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, when you do government ethics, you get used to a lot of frustration. And, um, you know, you just keep plugging away because it matters. Um, and I will say... I think my best moment in that regard was one time when near the end, I, I thanked President Obama for having always been supportive of the government ethics program. And it was clear that there was a tone from the top that um, the White House was responsive to our calls from OGE. And he just looked at me really sternly and um, said two words. He just said, it matters. And um I, I think it really does matter. Um, so, you know, it's frustrating, but but it's similar to this fight for voting rights. This is stuff that matters so much that that in a way losses and frustrations can't be a deterrent to keeping going because it's not, uh, I think, as, as John Lewis pointed out, a fight for a day or a month or a year. It's a fight for a lifetime. And um, 
you know, and also, you know, on the employment front, at least nobody's going to ever put the government ethics people out of business. It'd be nice if they did, but uh, there will always be violations to come and do. And on the second one, yeah, the, the frustration with um, these stupid blunders. I mean, ironically, the Trump administration really missed an opportunity because I was trying to help them. My goal and my staff's goal was to prevent ethics violations. And if these guys wanted to behave, we would have helped them behave um, and they would have benefited from it. Now, I think it became fundamentally impossible because Trump was never going to sell his assets and probably couldn't have because I, I suspect they're in a lot worse shape than the public realizes, not based on any inside information, just based on how how the papers are reporting things. Um, and that set a wrong tone. It, it's especially frustrating in this administration, even if the violations and, and missteps are smaller, and they're much, much smaller, there's no comparison between the two, there's still stupid mistakes that could be avoided. And I think what people overlook is just the human factor. You know, I suspect that Biden, for instance, has lots of people around him suggesting that maybe their involvement in this art sale is embarrassing and is a and, and is not helping his record. Um, but people care about their kids and lose perspective and can have a blind spot sometime. And um, or, or similarly with the White House employing four Rochettes in the in the executive branch um, and and dealing with a fifth who's a lobbyist. I mean, these are just dumb mistakes. And they fall more in the category of dumb mistakes that all administrations make as opposed to the kind of colossal mistakes the last administration made. Um, it's unfortunate. Um, I think it comes from having a, I said earlier, they view it as a compliance program and technically there's no rules on some of this stuff. I mean, Rochetti probably did not violate the anti-nepotism law because he probably didn't recommend his own kids. Um, it, but there's no doubt that those kids got the job because they're related to him and somebody was impressed by that fact and hired them. Um, and that's just the kind of stupid mistake you make when you have a compliance program instead of an ethics program. You don't step back and say, what does this do to our reputation as opposed to, are we following the rules? Yeah. Did we check the boxes? Totally. Yeah. All right, we have seven minutes and we have four questions, which means I'm going to ask for quick questions and relatively quick answers. Richard, hey. notwithstanding your effort to antagonize me, the floor is yours. Uh, I, I was hoping to get by, but anyway. Uh, so, uh, Walter, I really, I, I follow your Twitter feed and I, I, I don't know why, but I, I seem to be drawn to these Cassandra-like uh, 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 figures and uh, come away depressed, but I'm very grateful for what you do. Um, question I have is, is there any sense when you see, do you have a sense that nobody who is over, or that very few people who are overseeing these positions and these people who have ethical problems within the administration, do you have a sense that they don't see people as indispensable when perhaps they should? And there are a lot of smart, and you've touched on this before, there are a lot of smart people uh, qualified people who could be in those positions. So why, yeah. why aren't they going to cut and run? 
Yeah, you know, um, I, I, if I'm understanding the question correctly, it's like why bring in some of these people? Um, and I think this is a case of the human factor again. You know, I don't think any of these are, are bad motives, um, but I think sometimes you've worked with somebody over the years and you trust them and you're setting up something new and um, you want to get moving fast. And so you bring in somebody you trust. So for instance, the, that's in a huge part of it. Yeah. And in this administration, they brought in Anita Dunn because Biden's really close to her, but they set her salary too low to require her to file financial, this public financial disclosure. So we have no idea what she had. She had a lobbying firm and, um, mm. we have no idea what happened with that. Did she go back to it? Is, is it still going to function? And I just think this is somebody who's really talented and really good. And they decided whatever hit they take from bringing her in is worth her expertise. And as a political calculation, maybe that's right, but maybe she could have just given them informal advice from outside the government. Um, or, you know, somebody like Rahm Emanuel, who never really impressed me. He came from Barack Obama's background and came in with him. And so, um, you know, you have people you trust, and sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't. Now, I don't remember Emanuel having any ethics problems, so I guess that one worked out. Um, you know, he had a fiery temper and all, but... So, um, so I guess that's just the answer is I think there's a human factor and recruitment is an art, not a science. And they bring in the right person for the job. And sometimes I will say, having worked on ethics issues with people, there have been times in past administrations, Republican and Democratic alike, where the White House calls and they're like, the boss wants this person. This has to happen. You have to find a solution for managing these ethics problems, even if it's a waiver. But we have to figure out how to cross all the T's and dot all the I's and still get this person. And so there's, in many cases, it's a foregone conclusion they're coming in, and then you do the best you can with it. Um, and there were a few rare times over the years where people would give up on nominees they were dead set on because the ethics issues were just too big. And ultimately the person wasn't willing to sacrifice what they'd have to sacrifice to come in. But those were far and few between. So I think you get a lot of cases and I think the, the stuff with the families and the art sale and um, some of the choices just go back to these are human beings and they're and we're not always factoring in all the factors deb most the floor hello. is yours hello hi um i have a question kind of piggybacking on that um, a little bit of people in power have smart people around them as siblings as spouses as kids I mean, presumably could have a president who's uh, child is legitimately an artist prior or you or invested in something or works at a, a company how do you how do we get an ethical mindset and and allow people's families to have jobs that that they're passionate yeah. you know, they're good at and can do so i think this is a good case of the example of the difference between a rule and a standard and i think it would be very hard to draw a bright line rule here but the standard could be you know, 
don't capitalize on your relationship to the president. And I know this is not a popular view among many, but this is a case where this individual would not be selling 13 pieces of art for half a million dollars a piece if he wasn't the president's son. So let him be an artist and let him sell them at the torpedo factory in Alexandria, Virginia for 500 to 2000 a piece, or let him have a big fancy show in New York with all the celebrities and um, um, all the fanfare, but not sell the art. Um, you know, there's plenty of things he could do along the lines of art. And if he wanted to go into the business as a hedge fund manager or a lawyer, which he's always done, yeah, some people might criticize that his salary is too high at the hedge fund or his clients are too political at the law firm. But I think that's where we have to distinguish between reasonable, fair criticism and unfair criticism. There's always going to be unfair criticism. But I just don't think anybody can make the case that selling 13 pieces of art for half a million dollar a pop when you've never even juried into a community center art fair is not because you're the president's son. And I think he knows that. Um, and, and there's, you know, there are stop gaps for this. There is a famous letter from George Washington mm -hmm. to John Adams um, when Adams uh, is taking over the presidency. And Washington writes him a letter that says, I know you're going to have a... Uh, an issue with this, but there is a person in our foreign service who I want you not to discriminate against. And it is your son, John Quincy. He's hmm. the most talented diplomat we have. And you shouldn't let the fact that he's your son cause them to, you know, cause you to uh, not recognize that. And, uh, you know, like, it's it's a wonderful letter and it's in written in this very arch tone of meritocracy, which was of course quite well deserved because Quincy Adams was a remarkably talented individual. Um, you know, the truly extraordinary person, uh, it's you're not going to have to make a lot of excuses for. All right, we got two more questions and we're a little bit over time. Uh, David H. The floor is yours. Hi. Uh, so in my question was, is sort of the opposite of what Richard was asking, because what I was going to argue is in 2009, Obama nominated Tom Daschle to be a secretary of HHS. Mm -hmm. And that would have been really helpful for him in trying to get the ACA passed. And Daschle withdrew because of some tax issues, some ethical issues. And I think that made getting the ACA passed much harder. And so is that really a good outcome? So in that case, um, it wasn't the ethics office that blocked him. It became untenable for hoping the Senate would pass him because um, if I recall correctly, he had failed to report some income. And I recall White House people were furious at the time at him um so you know i i i now ironically in the trump administration the senate ignored tax problems spousal abuse problems um other problems that uh, would never have enabled somebody to get confirmed and so some of it's just a product of the times the the world was so partisan 
in the Trump administration that the Senate was just pushing through almost any idiot he nominated, except for that guy who had never heard of a motion in limine. <laughs> and, yeah, and there, and, was, and, and, and there was the one who, you know, sailed through and then afterwards carried a bullwhip in the State Department. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, so, <laughs> but that is not a joke, by the way. That yeah. really happened. Um, David Botts, you get the last question today. Um, well, thanks so much. And um, uh, Mr. Schaub, thanks for, for coming on here. So here's the opportunity. You're, you're about to go out. Tens of thousands of people are listening to you right now. What are the, what are the one or two things that you would suggest to members of the public to further push the topic of ethics? So I think um, the most important thing we need to do as a culture is reframe what is government ethics. And as I said at the beginning, I've really come to feel very strongly um, that racial equity issues, particularly when it comes to voting, are government ethics because a question of who the government, because it's all about misuse of power. And if the government is only representing some people and not others, it's by definition misusing power. And so I think we could all start thinking in terms of government ethics and government ethics needs to be distinct from policy. So for instance, I care about the environment and it's an ethical issue with small e, but I don't think that that's government ethics. Um, I do think that voting is, and I think the number one thing the public can do, particularly on social media, is realize that politicians, even the ones you like, are only going to do what the public pressures them to do. And the public has a role in a democracy. We, it's, it's an it's a participatory um, activity. If the public doesn't get engaged in democracy, we're going to lose democracy. And so I think um, instead of being knee-jerk defensive of candidates or politicians we like, realizing that getting them to be the best they can be includes pressuring them to do what they need to do. And in this case, uh, as much as I like President Biden, he has been lackluster in his support of voting rights. And I think we need to really lean on him for voting rights. I also think it's absurd that we keep reading about members of Congress buying and selling stocks um, in which they've had involvement as members of Congress. And there's just no good reason for allowing members of Congress to buy and sell stocks. They, yeah. they should just either freeze their assets or divest them. And I think the public needs to have more of an outcry about that. I think there's building momentum. And I think Congress is going to try to get away with doing the bare minimum to stave off the public criticism. And I think it's time for us to just really lean hard on them. Um, so I think those are the two biggest things the public can do is, is lean on the president and lean on Congress to do more and be better even if you like them or especially if you like them because they're not going to listen to the ones who aren't going to vote for them anyways but they will listen when their yeah. own voters start demanding more of them walter shaw we're going to leave it there thank you so much for coming on this is really fun um I'm great to see you man you're a great yeah. american oh, thank true. You. <laughs> i will say this 
Um, a couple of days ago, I tweeted out something um, and immediately three people tweeted at me and it was like the equivalent of someone where you know like you know who your friends are and you know that they know you when they know to tell you that there's broccoli in your teeth uh <laughs> or something like that and it was like scott and ben and walter and they were all like you and they said also the exact same thing you tweeted us austere and you meant august <laughs> and i was, <laughs> it was like I like and I like immediately fixed it, but it was like very cute and very sweet. And I just was like, it was a nice kind of moment. Sorry, Scott isn't here. I think I told him separately. But Walter, thanks for coming on. Ben, who do we have tomorrow? We have a very special guest tomorrow. Mike Pesca is coming back to the show, and he is not coming to talk about what you think he might be talking about. He's coming to play Where's the Lie. He's going to spin a yarn for you guys. Oh, my guys. God. We didn't even talk about France. Jesus. We, I gonna was going to tell about the time I got detained I, by French border guards. I know. We're, we're going to have you back you know, on. We're going to tell were gonna do that. I, I could tell about the time that I uh, got uh, attacked by skinheads in the, on the streets of <laughs> Stockholm and then ended up in a cat in a party with the cast of Barfly. Um, <laughs> it was the weirdest night of my life. But that's not tomorrow. Mike Pesca is going to spin a yarn and we'll uh, figure out if he is telling the truth. And that'll be 22 hours and 52 minutes from now. <laughs> and until then, Kate? Uh, we don't have fun anymore. Uh, but we I can I can still trade stocks, right? Like I can, yeah, I'm going to make some NFTs. I'm going to make some art. Y'all are going to buy it. Lots and lots I of am money. totally, I am totally going to make an NFT of the first Lawfare article and put it up as a fundraiser for Lawfare. And I expect you should. everybody. I just got $23,000 for an NFT of a, of a law journal article. Wow. Really? Who did? I'll tell you about it later. Anyway. I have a hat that says Walter Schaub, calm down, because Kellyanne Conway told me to do that. Maybe that's an NFT. Maybe a picture of you wearing the hat <laughs> with uh, <laughs> with an NFT. Yes, totally. <laughs> um, see you guys later. Bye. <laughs>